Okay, let's go to 1 Corinthians 14, 15. 1 Corinthians 15 tonight, please. We let those Mississippi people have free reign of the place. And that includes through the whole, through the whole time of teaching, whatever. That's it's fine. 1 Corinthians 15, the subject tonight is simply one resurrection. One resurrection. And once you're, I think we're going to begin with 1512. Last night we started the 15, one to give some context to the most far-reaching passage in all of the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 15, 24 to 28. We give it context by going all the way back to 1 of 1 Corinthians. So if you want the whole chapter or the whole context, last night begins it. We also hit a little bit of that on the seven elements of the Christ event on Sunday. And we may hit it again this Sunday. I'm not sure yet. Let's take a couple moments. Silent preparation. Father, what a privilege it is to gather in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. And what a special privilege this week to be able to host our Mississippi contingent, the faithful believers from below the Mason-Dixon line, who have certainly towed the line with doctrine and stayed true to the word. And we thank you for them. Pray that you'll bless the remainder of their stay in this area and with your people. Father, we recognize that every time we meet for the word, it's an opportunity for you to lay claim to us as your people and to more of us as your people. For we are not our own. We've been bought with a price, and we recognize that tonight. We know that the more you lay claim to our lives, the more we are liberated. We also recognize that where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And may we enjoy that freedom as you allow us a grasp on the insight of the reality of Jesus Christ in his universally saving significance. For in the light of that glorious vision, We live our lives in the light of that glorious vision. We do not perish because we do not continue in an ontology that has been crucified with Christ. We ask tonight that your son will be manifested here, that your son, Jesus Christ, will be unveiled in this place, for we ask it in his name. Amen. Paul does not separate the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, from the universal resurrection of all the dead. They are one. And this is another illustration of what so often prevails in the scripture, the the power of one. If Christ has been raised from the dead, then all will be raised from the dead, is the point Paul is making. We could make it even more strong. Since Christ has been raised from the dead, then all of humanity will be raised from the dead because in Paul's anthropology, Christ is the second bearer 
of the destiny of humankind in toto. Christ is the second bearer of human destiny in its totality. Humanity in its totality has a destiny bearer. First destiny bearer is Adam. The second destiny bearer is Christ. And as we will see once again, as in Adam, all die. So in Christ, all will be made alive. I hope to get to that, not tonight probably, but in 1 Corinthians fifteen twenty-two, we can show exegetically that the emphasis falls on all there, Christ and all. In fact, it's almost shouting from the housetops, Jesus Christ in his universally saving significance. Conversely, if there is no general or universal bodily resurrection in the future, then there has been no bodily resurrection of Jesus in A.D. 30. Paul makes this point once, then again, then again, then again. One resurrection. Not to be confused with Revelation and its view of the first resurrection, because there is within the one resurrection several classifications, beginning with Christ the first fruits, as we'll see in 1 Corinthians 15 20. We may get that far tonight. So the resurrection of Jesus Christ as the second bearer of human destiny is the resurrection of all humanity because of 1 Corinthians 15 22, which will make it forcefully come forward. Paul forcefully, emphatically, with great stress, shows that the resurrection of Christ from the dead is the unequivocal yes, the yes of God to the universal resurrection of all humanity and in a still wider scope of all of created reality. All of humankind will be raised to life because Christ was raised to life from the dead. Because Christ was bodily raised to life from the dead, then all of humankind will be bodily raised from death to share the life of Christ. That's the emphatic declaration of the gospel, which includes the justification of the ungodly, or as we have seen it last night, the transformation of evil into the supreme good. The ultimate transformation of evil into the supreme good occurs in the resurrection. And so we must insist again that the general resurrection is not ultimately a duality of justified and condemned humanity, which a misunderstanding of John five twenty-eight and 29 would put forth. Some, Jesus said, those who have done good will be raised to life. Those who have done evil will be raised to crisis or judgment. But crisis there does not mean, as it's even translated in some irresponsible translations, it does not mean condemnation. In fact, it means acquittal. It means a judgment of acquittal accompanied by a transformation by grace of the evildoer. What better judgment on an evildoer 
and the transformation of the evildoer into something else and something other, and something totally distinct from what the evildoer was. We have the perfect historical example of that in Saul of Tarsus, who went from trying to destroy the church, the community of God, to one who said, it is no longer I who live. It is no longer the evildoer who lives. And yet he lives, and yet it's Christ, the supreme good, who lives in him. So again, I must insist that the general resurrection is not ultimately a duality or a splitting of humanity into justified and condemned categories. For even evildoers are raised to life and to a transformation of grace. Otherwise, Paul must not have been serious when he said, in Christ, all will be made alive. Even evildoers are raised to life and to a transformation by grace, which is their judgment. Their judgment is a transformation by grace. God's justice, therefore, is creative, not retributive. God's justice is creative. If any man, any person be in Christ, there's a new creation. Whether that person was an evildoer or whether that person was a pious person or a doer of good, if any person is in Christ, a new creation has been called forth that includes them. Now we're ready to 1 Corinthians 15, 12 to hit it. My translation of the Greek text here, and again, I'm going to lean fairly heavily on, for help, thankfully, the Mirror Bible, which offers quite a bit of strong help in terms of giving the sense of this passage. More important than a lexical exegesis, and I've discovered this in the past few years, more important than an Word-by-word lexical analysis of a verse is the discovery of the sense of what's being said in the Holy Spirit. And it's only then that the sense is conveyed to the people of God that causes them to rejoice, to have joy. Because Nehemiah 8.8 through 10 says that Ezra and others stood in pulpits And they communicated the scriptures, which were in Chaldean at the time because of the captivity. And they gave the sense. And the people went out and rejoiced because they understood the sense of the scripture. The sense of the scripture is not conveyed by a lexical, word-by-word analysis of the text that's important but it's not where the sense comes from the sense is spirit taught that's what i am depending on tonight so first corinthians fifteen twelve. now if christ is proclaimed the word therefore proclaimed is authoritatively that is with the authority of god if christ is authoritatively proclaimed as resurrected from the dead and if he is authoritatively proclaimed as such then you better believe that he's raised from the dead. If Christ is authoritatively proclaimed as resurrected from the dead, how can some of you 
He looks a little Galatianish now. How can some of you say, quote, there is no resurrection of the dead, which some were saying there in Corinth? Saints were saying it. Verse 13, if there is no resurrection of the dead, meaning if there is no future universal resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised. You can't divorce these two realities. When Christ was raised effectively as a bearer of the destiny of all humanity, all humanity was raised with him. And there's nothing in the postponement of our bodily resurrection that says otherwise. I like to think of it as when the beloved disciple went, looked into the tomb, which was empty, he saw two sets of folded clothing. One was the headpiece and one was the body piece. It's as if in awakening to resurrection, the head rose first, guaranteeing that the body will follow. And this is the guarantee Paul is not separating the resurrection of Jesus from the dead as the first fruits and as the firstborn from the dead from the inevitability of the bodily resurrection of all humankind. And the bodily resurrection of all humankind is not ultimately a distinction or a duality of condemned versus justified people. That would give the lie to or call a lie what he says in Romans 5.18. That by the obedience of one, all were given a life-giving justification. A life-giving transformation. A life-giving sanctification. Paul reveals a solidarity then, if you want to call it that or a harmony, or a cohesion of Christ's resurrection and the universal resurrection of the dead. One cannot and one does not exist without the other. Christ's resurrection from the dead means the universal resurrection. The universal resurrection is rooted and grounded in Christ's individual resurrection. When Jesus Christ died, all died. If one died for all, Paul says, then all died. This was the transforming epinosis for Paul. This was the transforming truth to Paul because he said, from now on, the love of Christ is controlling me toward all humankind. The same thing happened to Peter in a different way when he saw the image of beasts coming down from heaven that were once called unclean by the Jews and by Peter. And God said, arise, Peter, kill and eat. It's okay to kill and eat those once unclean animals. And Peter said, may it far be it from me in Acts 10, 28, far be it from me to eat anything that's unclean. And God said right back to him, don't you ever call that unclean, which I have cleansed. There's no person. And so Peter concluded that that means there's no human being that he gets to call unclean or even unsaved. You can't do that because that limits the death of Christ. If one died for all, then all died. If one raised from the dead for all, then all have been raised in him. Now, yet, 
There is an order of occurrence of the bodily resurrection. Now, let's see how Paul does this. He comes around, he circles around, and he comes and hits you again. He's like a fighter. He said, I'm not a shadow boxer. My punches connect. And that's exactly what he's doing here. 1 Corinthians 15, 14. If Christ is not risen from the dead, which is what some of them were implying, then our preaching is empty. And your faith is vain. Verse 15, moreover, we would be found to be false witnesses about God because we have testified about God that he resurrected the Christ whom he did not raise. If indeed the dead are not resurrected. Note again how strong the cohesion of Christ's resurrection and the universal resurrection of the dead. If there's not to be a general resurrection then Christ was not raised. This is precisely because when Christ was raised, all of humankind whose destiny he bore in his death, in his burial, in his resurrection, in his elevation, and in his enthronement, all were effectively raised as well. And the apostle bears down on the point even one more time in 1516. If there is no, and the mirror Bible puts it bluntly here, no universal, he uses that term, and I think rightly so. If there is no universal resurrection from the dead, then Christ has not been resurrected. You see what Paul's doing here? He's doing over and over again saying there's one resurrection and the resurrection of Jesus Christ who is the bearer, the second bearer, the second man, the second bearer of human destiny is the resurrection of all. The resurrection is one. It is of Christ and all of humankind. Verse 17, and if Christ has not been resurrected, that means he's still dead. If Christ has not been resurrected and is still dead, we could say, then your faith is worthless and you are still in your sins. These are all unthinkable things which... Paul is making the point that the exact opposite is true, so the most unthinkably wonderful things are true. The most unthinkably terrible things are not true. The resurrection of Christ from the dead presupposes the fact of his death for our sins, a death like no other death, which in turn takes as a fact his incarnation and life of vicarious obedience in the days of his flesh. That's what we're dealing with, on, have been on Sunday mornings, the seven elements of the Christ event. Incarnation followed by a life of vicarious obedience in which Jesus Christ gave the proper consistent response to the Father for all of us. The third element being the obedience that ex- to the extent, it culminated in the extent of death by crucifixion. The fourth element being his burial. The fifth being his resurrection, which we're dealing with Tonight, we could call it the fifth element, which was kind of a goofy movie, but kind of a fun movie, a goofy movie. But 
The fifth element, incidentally, according to the movie, was love. But they might be onto something there. The sixth element is his elevation or his ascension, which we dealt with quite in detail in Ephesians 4, 8 through 11 in connection with Psalm 68, 17 and through 18. And then his enthronement, which is really the heart of the matter right now. The enthronement is the heart and the climax of the book of Revelation, an enthroned lamb. We ask the question, does Paul's epistles, do Paul's epistles present an image of an enthroned lamb as Revelation does? And we said, yes, it does, only a little more invisibly or subtly, because in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, he says, Christ our sacrificed lamb, our paschal lamb, our Passover lamb, has been killed. Just like Revelation 5, I saw a lamb in verse 6 who had been slaughtered. But he's standing, and then he sits enthroned, as Revelation seven seventeen says. So Christ, the paschal lamb, can be a reference to Christ from 1 Corinthians 5, 7 onward. So when we get to 1 Corinthians 15, 25, we see that Christ, the Paschal Lamb, must reign until all his enemies are under his feet. A lamb is on the final throne of the universe. Not a lion, a lamb. Now, if Christ has not been resurrected and he's still dead, then your faith is worthless. In fact, Paul goes on to say, you're pretty much the most miserable people on the face of the earth. Christians. That's what the world thinks anyways, but Paul said it would actually be true. The resurrection of Christ from the dead presupposes the fact of his death for our sins which takes in turn a fact of his incarnation. And all the seven elements of the Christ event are saving. That's why when Thomas Torrance was asked, when were you saved? He said, when Christ was born of a virgin. And that's, there's a sense where that is absolutely correct. And I, you know, I know that's got the raised eyebrows. So I'll just leave it there. I like to leave some questions hanging in the air so that we can bear down on them later. That life of vicarious obedience in the days of his flesh in Hebrews 5, 7, and 8 is very clearly demonstrated there. The resurrection of Christ from the dead by God is among other things. Listen carefully to this. This is kind of new ground. Last night was new ground. Tonight's new ground. Here we're hitting new ground. The resurrection of Christ from the dead by God is, among other things, the sign of his approval of the blood of his son, or that is, the death of his son for sins and for sin. That means destroying sin as an occupying power, as an enslaving power in the human race. Hebrews 13.20 says this, and if Hebrews wasn't written by Paul, and I don't think it was, Hebrews is definitely a product of Pauline influence. Pauline influence. As is 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. I don't believe that they were authored by Paul, but they are a relevant 
Pauline impact. They actually represent a time period after Paul and before the patristic theologians, and they are canonical. They do belong to the canon, but I think they are pseudepigraphical, meaning using the name of Paul in order to summarize what Paul was saying in his epistles. And they are uniquely and powerfully universal. That's, that's where he says it is God's intention and will that all men be saved, all human beings be saved, and come to the epinosis or the grasp of reality of the truth. And we're going to see that. I, I don't, there's more wrinkled brows on that. Don't worry about that. I'm not, that's my personal conviction after a whole lot of study, and I can demonstrate it. But it is more important to me, in fact, it's more revelatory to see the pastorals as a summation under the Holy Spirit's guidance of Paul's entire scripture than to see them as authored by Paul because then you're dealing with some contradictions that can't be fixed. And so, in fact, there is a proof that shows that some of the things in those in the Timothys, for example, can only be verified as having been written in about 150 A.D. So there's I'm not against the can I'm not saying they're not canonical. They are. They're inspired. They are. But I think they represent something that was a continuity of Paul's gospel from Paul's gospel to the patristic theologians, which we studied in Ramelli. That's all coming up. And I'm not afraid to introduce it that way, so hang in there. But Hebrews 13.20, under a definite Pauline influence, it says the God of peace. To me, that means the God who effected the reconciliation of all things. Brought up from the dead, the great shepherd of the sheep, our Lord Jesus, by the blood of the everlasting covenant. Notice that again, Hebrews 13, 20, the God of peace brought up from the dead, the great shepherd of the sheep, our Lord Jesus, by the blood of the everlasting covenant. The resurrection here then is seen as a dramatic recognition by the God of peace that his son's death enacted as it was in perfect obedience to the father ratified the everlasting covenant of God to all flesh, to all mankind. And in fact, to all creation, ratified or confirmed an unconditional covenant of promise mediated by the faithful obedience to the extent of death by crucifixion, Philippians 2.8, of the Messiah, even Jesus, our Lord. The great shepherd of the sheep was always understood in the Old Testament as being Yahweh. Yahweh is my shepherd, Psalm 23. The Lord Jesus is the great shepherd of the sheep. Therefore, Jesus is Yahweh. He is the God of Israel. We are the Israel of God. The people of God now who have had faith elicited upon the hearing of the gospel form a community that's provisional and proleptic, not the end-all, catch-all of all things, but the beginning of what will one day be a universal community of humanity made alive with Christ's own life. Now, you know what we're confronted with here, don't you? The reality that God's approval of Jesus is your salvation. 
not God's approval of me. That's not my salvation. God's approval of Jesus is my salvation, is your salvation. We saw that last Thursday. I'll say it again tonight. We're confronted with the reality that God's approval of Jesus is our salvation. And we can say with equal confidence, based on Hebrews 13, 20, that God's approval of Jesus' blood, which is a metonymy for his obedience to the extent of death, or even another way of saying his faithfulness, is our salvation. God's approval of Jesus' blood is ours. That's why Ephesians 1, 6 says we are graced in the beloved. We are graced by God in the beloved. We are approved by God because he approves of Jesus Christ, and we are in him. As, the, as Lonergan observed, the first divine mission was so that God could love us as he loves his own son. The second divine mission, that of the spirit, is because God now does love us as he loves his own son. So he freely gives us the spirit without measure. Jesus himself re- referred to his death as, quote, my blood of the covenant. My, this is my blood of the covenant. Mark 14, 24, Matthew 26, 28, Luke 22, 20. Paul picks it up, 1 Corinthians eleven twenty five. My blood of the covenant, Jesus said, which was represented by the fruit of the vine, when he held up the fruit of the vine, what was he doing? He was instituting the first Christian Eucharist in the last Jewish Passover. And he was instituting and showing that by his death, there is a now a change of ages and a universal transformation of universal conditions. That's how big this was in this little upper room gathering of a few men and a few women. Never think small gatherings of Christians are insignificant. And never think that big crowds of Christians really mean anything. Necessarily. Again, the fruit of the vine which Jesus held up along with the bread that he broke. The fruit of the vine represented the blood of the covenant. The blood which sealed and confirmed God's unconditional promise. And it was his invocation of the first Christian Eucharist invoked by the Lord Jesus himself on the occasion of the last Passover when he was to reveal himself as the Paschal Lamb in Revelation 5-6 and 1 Corinthians 5-7. In fact, put those two together and you'll see a remarkable likeness of Paul to John. 1 Corinthians 5-7, Revelation 5-6. Read them in any translation and just... This is how I began to love the word. I would just savor those two thoughts and then see them meld and blend and say, wow, and then have, all of a sudden there's a epignosis is created. Epignosis, which is a startling, insightful grasp of the reality that is Jesus Christ. 
It's phenomenal. There's nothing like it. Stay under the word, whatever you do. Stay with the word, whatever you do. That's how insights are conveyed. Again, the blood of the covenant, Jesus said, my blood of the covenant was represented by the fruit of the vine in the first Christian Eucharist, and we will be partaking in a Christian Eucharist this Sunday. Invoked by the Lord Jesus himself on the occasion of the last Passover when he was to reveal himself as the Paschal Lamb, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Remember that one in John one twenty nine. A man is walking by. It's no big thing. It's like an event that happens a billion times a day across the face of the earth. A man is just walking by. But another man remarks to some disciples in his midst, and he says, look, there's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That man walking by was a unique experience. That was not just a man walking by. That was the Lamb of God who was on his way to take away the sin of the world or the sin that crippled the cosmos, the sin that keeps the whole creation enslaved to corruption, the sin that warps and distorts the human image, the true humanity of mankind, and distorts the divine image in man. He's going to take it away, and he has. All sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified by the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. I'm not going to always give the verse numbers on some of these, so you can get them together. John 19.30, when Jesus spoke, it is finished. I'm not sure he hollered that out. I don't think he did, because it's not recorded in Matthew, Mark, or Luke. It's only recorded in John, and the only one who heard it was one who was pretty close to the cross. And so when he said it's finished, John received an insight that others didn't have. What was finished? The sin of the world was taken away. Because the one who spoke that is the Lamb of God who took it away. A new creation had been born out of his agony. And his agony was finished. A new creation was born from his agony. In his screams on the cross, as I said before, were his identification with a desperate creation, a fallen creation. His resurrection is the liberation of that creation. Now, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, as in Rev the book, the shepherd is one with the Lamb. The offerer is the offering. The shepherd is the Lamb. The shepherd who shepherds us is a Lamb. How do I know that? Because the lamb takes away the sin of the world. In Revelation, it says, because the lamb in the center of the throne. Please note that for a Sunday morning, worshipers. Because the lamb in the center of the throne will shepherd them. And he guides them to springs of water and wipes away every tear from their eyes. Revelation seven seventeen. An enthroned lamb shepherds. the sheep of God's pasture, 
And I love Psalm 100 because it says, we are his people and the sheep of his pasture. It is he that has made us and not we ourselves. We are his workmanship. Paul picked up that thought in Ephesians 2, 19. We are his poema. We are his poem. We're his masterpiece. We are his creation, created in Christ Jesus. So far from us being saved by our works, we are God's work. That's Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. An enthroned lamb shepherds the sheep of God's pasture who are God's people. A people who have not made themselves, but who have been called into existence as a new creation. By the God who calls into existence the things that do not exist and who raises the dead. He did both with us. We did not exist as the sheep of his pasture. He called us into existence as that. We did not exist as his people once we were not a people. But now we exist as the people of God. Once we had not received mercy, but now we receive mercy. We've received mercy as those who have received it before everybody gets it in Romans 11.32. Now... We've been called into existence as a new creation in 2 Corinthians 5.17, Galatians 6.15, by God in Christ and by Christ in God. For God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their sins to them. Who's them? The world. So the one who knew no sin is Jesus Christ and to those who were made the righteousness of God in him are who? The world. Who's exempted in all the world if God did not impute any of the sins of the world to the world? So who's exempted from the salvific event? Who is? I'll say this. If any human being is exempted from the justifying love of God, then Christ's death was in vain. For God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their sins to him. And why should God impute the sins of the world to the world when Christ, the one who knew no sin, became sin for us, us meaning the world? In that case, the old song that I used to mock and still do a little bit, we are the world, is true. The we here is the world. Not imputing the sins of the world so that he could make us, the world, the righteousness of God in him, in Christ. In Christ, all the world. In Christ, all will be made alive. In Christ, all things will be summed up. I have no problem with those declarations. They're biblical. So he became sin for us, the world, that we, the world, might be partakers of the righteousness of God or the masterpiece of his deliverance in Christ. The righteousness of God in Christ means the masterpiece of divine deliverance in Christ. If Christ is not risen, 
then his death is like any other death. Oh, it might be heroic. It might be the death of a martyr. It might be the death of a man for his cause, or it might even be the death of a man for his God. But it's just like other deaths if he's not risen. And if, his, if he's not risen, then his death was like everybody's death, then we're still dead in our sins because he died for our sins according to the scriptures and was raised from the dead for our justification according to the scriptures. So, if Christ is not risen, then his death is like any other death and we're all still in our sins. And it is obvious that our belief that he was raised is useless if Christ is not raised. Because it's tragically misplaced. How do you believe in vain? You believe something wrong. And again, I'm going to... Now, don't get a big head about this, Claudia. I'm going to the Mirror Bible again. Claudia gave me the, Claudia gave me the Mirror Bible. Don't get a big head. Don't get, don't get proud now. You'll ruin your whole run you've been having here. Been having a great run. And you'll continue that till the end. But Francois de Troyes, and I remember my French class, especially Mrs. Sandrew, because she finally figured out that I was the one that instigated my friends getting in trouble. She discovered that one day. Monsieur Alain! Yes, Mrs. Sandrew. Écoutez! Yes, Mrs. Sandrew. You're going to the office. Yes, I am. Yes. The principal's office. No, <laughs> anyways. Francois Dutois is the guy. It's, he's the translator. He said in the parenthesis here of 1 Corinthians 15, 17, listen to this, because I believe God has gifted this man in many occasions with the sense that's so coveted and needed by God's people today, the sense beyond the lexical accuracy of men like A.T. Robertson and other exegetes that I've studied and I've been privileged to study, the sense. He makes the following comment here in a parenthesis in his translation of 1 Corinthians 15, 17. Listen carefully. In Paul's understanding, the body of Christ on the cross was the document of humanity's guilt and his resurrection was the receipt of their acquittal. He quotes, or he at least cites Colossians 2.14 for this, which is good because that demonstrates that he was right about it. Colossians 2.14-15 and Romans 4.25. He was handed over for our sins and raised for our justification. Who sins if not all sins? For he's this, he was the propitiation, propitiation for the sins of the world. Not for our sins only, but for the sins of the world. So when Romans 4.25 says he was handed over for our sins, our means the world's sins, the sins of the world. So he was raised for our justification means raised for the justification of all. Say, how do you get that? I follow 4.25 to 5.18 of Romans, which still to me now after 77 hours of teaching this times 10 studying this, recently is the heart of the heart of the matter of our study Romans 5:18 
and then just said again in complimentary and conversely away in 519, the same way, Romans. That's the heart of the matter. No, the heart of the heart of the matter. He goes on to say, if humanity was still guilty after Jesus died, his resurrection would neither be possible nor relevant. This explains Acts 10.28. I already referred that to you where God said, don't you call unclean what I have cleansed. That means you have no right to call any human being unclean in the sense of outside of the salvific range of God. How dare you? How dare I? He said, this explains Acts 10.28 and 2 Corinthians 5.14 and 16, which I've already referred to. If one died for all, then all died. And henceforth, he doesn't view any man after the flesh. Acts 17.31 says, Paul speaking on the Mount of Areopagus or the Mount of Ares or Mars Hill. He says, because God has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness. What is righteousness, if not the act of God in unconditional salvation? God will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all men. Not much assurance to all men if he's coming to damn half of them. Assurance to all men, all human beings, by raising him from the dead. Now, I say, when I read something like that, it's almost sublime, and you almost say, is that too good to be true? And so I ask the question, onset, is it true? Is that so? My answer, first of all, Paul's understanding that the body of Christ on the cross was the document of humanity's guilt. Is that true? Well, I read Colossians 2.14, which says this, Paul's words. And when you were dead in trespasses and sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive with him and forgave all your trespasses. He erased the certificate of debt with its obligations that was against us and opposed to us and has taken it out of the way by nailing it to the cross. But Jesus Christ's body was nailed to the cross, right? The certificate of guilt, of the humanity's guilt, was nailed to the cross when Christ's body was nailed to the cross. So when Christ was raised from the dead bodily, that's the receipt of our acquittal. Whose acquittal? All of humanity's. The sense is correct here. Christ's body was nailed to the cross, and when his body was nailed to the cross... God erased the certificate of debt with its obligation that was against us and opposed to us and take it, taken it out of the way. So, yes, Francois, Monsieur Dutois, Paul's understanding the body of Christ on the cross was the document of humanity's guilt. Then was his resurrection, I asked, then was his resurrection from the dead the, quote, receipt of their acquittal. That is the acquittal of humanity in toto. And then I would say yes, and in two ways, at least two ways. First, Romans 4.25 speaks of Jesus being handed over to death for sins and then to his being resurrected for our justification. 
our sins has to be the sins of the whole world. If you compare this with 1 John 2, 2, and it bears comparison. And our justification, which we gave definition to last night in 12 points, has to be the justification of humanity in toto or in totality too, in toto too. Toto too? Yeah, toto too. They didn't realize they were doing the whole gospel there back in the Wizard of Oz. And she asked if toto too, can toto come too? Yes, toto too. Human beings in, I know, I know. I know. Some of you are psychoanalyzing me, that's okay. But bear a little with me in my madness. We need a little more madness in the world today because the sane people of the world are mad. Now, our justification has to be the justification of humanity in toto too. A point that's explicitly made in Romans 5.18. Now, in closing, this might be a good propitious time to bring in another quote from Kazaman. Kasaman, or as American theologians say, Caseman. I don't say Caseman because I heard Moltman talk about him. He's one of his teachers, as was Jeremiah, who wrote about the parables. And Jürgen Moltman said, Ernst Kasaman. So that's what I'll say. Ernst Kasaman, Romans from 1980, page 157. Listen to what he asked. Does the hope, you can see how this began to unfold in theologians in the 20th century. You can see how these questions began to arise. And some of the questions they asked, I'm already emphatically saying, yeah, 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 yeah. But I I remember when I had to ask these questions. But he said this, does the hope of general resurrection, and this knocked me back in my chair and woke me up, just like the guy in Braveheart who got wounded and they slapped a iron to his wound. And it was heated up sword. And they put it on his wound and he hollered out and he said, that'll wake you up in the morning. Well, this woke me up in the morning. Does the hope of general restoration, he said, not resurrection, does the hope of general restoration, and then he has parenthesis, and guess what's in the parenthesis? Apocatastasis. Does the hope of general restoration, apocatastasis, come to expression here? He's speaking of 1 Corinthians 15, 24 to 28, which we're anticipating. If we take seriously the all, he uses the word pantes, the all of Romans 5, 18b, and the inclusive hoi polloi, of verse 19b in antithetical correspondence to the first clauses. He says, certainly believers are meant. Certainly believers are meant. Yet they alone are not mentioned and nothing justifies the assumption that at the end only they remain for Paul. The parallels, he goes on to say, the parallels in 1 Corinthians 15, 22 and particularly Romans eleven thirty two, where Paul talks about being mercy upon all, should not be overlooked. 
And then this is what I wrote in italics, in my own italics, to emphasize what he said. He goes on to say, common to all these passages. He's speaking of 1 Corinthians 15, 24 to 28. He's speaking of Romans 5, 18 and 19. He's speaking of Romans eleven thirty two. He's speaking of apocatastasis in Acts 3.21. Common to all these passages is that all powerful grace is unthinkable without eschatological universalism. All power, and that's exactly what we were trying to do. If God's grace is unconditional, therefore all powerful, doesn't it have to be universal? And that's exactly what he says. Listen to what Ernst Kosman said. He's gutting his way through Romans now in Germany, where almost everybody holds to the old Reformation line. And he did much of the time hold to justification by faith. And didn't quite get that justification by faithfulness because that didn't really get rediscovered until Richard Hayes and other people. But he said, again, common to all these passages is that all powerful grace is unthinkable without eschatological universalism, which is what we know as everyone being redeemed in the end. Then he says, the intention of the apostle is to present the universality of the reign of Christ in antithesis to the world of Adam. New creation is proclaimed, and this points to the end when, as 1 Corinthians 15.28 puts it, God will be all in all. That's Ernst Kasemann, the mentor of Jürgen Moltmann. So, consequently, we can conclude that, yes, this explains Acts 10.28, that Peter was instructed by God not to call any person common or unclean. You say, but he had a vision, and it was about animals, so he was supposed to call No animal unclean. No, Peter interpreted that properly as from now on, he couldn't call the Gentiles goyim or unclean. And God demonstrated it when he went to the house of Cornelius and preached the same gospel that he preached to the Jews. And the same spirit came and claimed all the people in that room like he did in Jerusalem at Pentecost. Gentiles. Why? Because God had already called them clean. If they're clean, the spirit can grab them up and indwell them whenever he wants to. As I walked through my neighborhood today, I said, Father, I pray that you'll bless this community. I pray that you'll bless this neighborhood. I pray that you'll impart faith. Give faith surprisingly to somebody today. If If it's your will and if it's your perfect timing. And... I was basically asking, you've already cleansed everyone in this neighborhood, everyone in this town, so you can lay claim to them anytime you want. So why don't you do that? That's called prayer. That's called intercession. I think he probably did. But that you were not going to read about it in the, in the Post-Gazette. I don't think the Post-Gazette would write about it. If God appeared 
It's like my cousin Greg. I said, Greg, you need to have happened to you. What happened to Saul of Tarsus? And Jesus Christ appeared to him on the road to Damascus. You know what Greg said? I'd still argue with him. Now that's some argument. I'm looking forward to that day. I wish I could be. I want to be there with Greg. Okay, here is your time. Here it is. Argue away. Closing number two. We can interpret Acts 17.31 again to verify Monsieur de Troyes' assertions to mean that judgment of acquittal for humanity at large has been guaranteed by the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. In the language employed by John 5.28 and 29, those who will have done evil will be raised to the judgment of acquittal and a transformation by grace. Those who will have done good, that is, simply by embracing the divine solution in Christ while they lived in mortal bodies, will be raised to the bodily life of the coming age because they won't have to be judged as acquitted because they already were when faith was elicited upon the hearing of the gospel. And you ask, why does some have faith elicited in the hearing of the gospel and some others are acquitted after death because God chose to do it that way. And that's going to be really, really neat. That's why. So some people live their lives in this life and have the extraordinary privilege of living their lives, knowing God, knowing Jesus Christ and growing in grace and in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Others have the wonderful privilege of living in God's creation under God's creator and not being acquitted until after death. So what? There's going to be a compensation for all. Don't worry. And that's why. If there's no resurrection from the dead, then all those who have fallen asleep in Christ have simply perished. Again, the mirror Bible, extraordinarily helpful, extraordinarily helpful here for the grasping of the sense and of the intent in Paul. Because he says, no resurrection implies no hope for anyone beyond the grave. There's no hope for anybody. And it makes no difference whether you believed or not. It makes no difference whether you believed or not. If Christ isn't risen, then whether you believe or not, you've perished when you die. You're dead, you're dead. You're dead and you're dead. Reverse that. And say, it doesn't matter whether you believed or not, you were included in Christ's resurrection and will be included in the final acquittal. But you know what? As we preach the gospel, faith is elicited in some. God has already laid claim to the whole human race. He can invade any human person anytime he wants, as he's doing with Muslims by the thousands every day, by just simply invading them with the Holy Spirit and manifesting Jesus Christ to them. Why? Because they're clean. They've been made clean by the cross of Christ. Just thought I'd leave you with a shocker. Thank you, Father, for this opportunity. We pray for understanding. We pray for epignosis. We pray for the kind of knowledge that is a grasp of the reality of the truth that's embodied in Jesus. Nothing 
is greater than the possession of the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing compares to it. Everything else is dung compared to it. Everything else is written off as loss compared to it with Paul. I count all things as loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord because this knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord is the stunning and startling insight that he is the all-saving Savior. 